there and welcome to the Let's Talk podcast. I'm Carrie Lloyd-Shaw, Christian blogger, wife and mum, muser and grace lover. I write and chat about a broad range of biblical subjects deeply rooted in and flowing from this focused centre that one man died for everyone. I believe that it's this truth about Jesus that makes our hope as Christians visible to others as part of a collective worldwide community of faith, the Church of Jesus Christ. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram and if you're a word nerd like me, you can check out my latest blog articles by heading on over to the website, carrieloydshaw.com. Right now though, let's talk. I like the Apostle Paul. I like his ability to call a spade a spade, the unrelenting pursuit of his faith, and his bold assertion to preach nothing but the cross of Christ. No doubt he ruffled more than a few feathers at times with his unapologetic directness and refusal to tolerate any other gospel than that of being saved by grace through faith alone. He doesn't shy away from telling it how it was. The reality that his zeal for God had been seriously misplaced early on, and that he had been a violent persecutor and destroyer of the very faith he was now thankful to call his own. He doesn't downplay the facts of his former life, that not only had he been zealous for the traditions of his fathers, he had also been considered an up-and-coming amongst his peers, his upward trajectory in Judaism eclipsing many of those his own age. Yet he also doesn't state this just for effect, or from a place of pride, but rather as facts relevant to advancing the true gospel narrative he now endeavours to preach. He states that he counts all those things of his former life as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He has a particularly warm and fatherly relationship with Timothy, whom he calls his son in the faith, and he shows deep regard for several fellow workers, whom he commends by name. Epaphroditus, husband and wife team Priscilla and Aquila, Barnabas, Titus, Silas, Luke, Lydia, and Anisiphorus. He demonstrates tenderness and genuine love and concern for all those of the household of faith, and he is a passionate evangelist to those who are yet still strangers and foreigners to the gospel of grace. His letters to the early churches are full of pastoral advice and authoritative direction, yet he is also unapologetically direct, and is prepared to meet and name injustice or falsity head-on, as in the situation that he writes about, in 2 Corinthians 7. See also 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, Galatians 2, verse 4, and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Britannica.com comments, Paul's letters reveal a remarkable human being, dedicated, compassionate, emotional, sometimes harsh and angry, clever and quick-witted, supple in argumentation, and above all, possessing a soaring, passionate commitment to God, Jesus Christ, and his own mission. Paul's influence, passion, and commitment enabled the gospel of Jesus Christ to take root and flourish throughout Asia Minor, and its spread continued long after his death, reaching even to the ends of the earth. Paul wrote several letters, one of which was the letter to the church at Rome. In chapters 5 and 6 of Romans, 
he covers some significant theological territory by dealing with the themes of death, life and resurrection, which came about, he states, by one man. The need for our forgiveness and reconciliation with God sits at the heart of the Gospel. Paul recounts in Romans 5 how humanity found itself in the dismal state of being sinning, dying creatures, and why we need forgiveness, reconciliation, and renewal. He makes his first point in Romans 5 verse 12, where he teaches that sin came into the world by one man, and that death followed swiftly on sin's heels, enslaving all of humanity in a dominion of darkness and ultimately separation from God. The word he uses for man is the Greek word anthropos, meaning human. We get our English word anthropology from the combining of anthropos, human, and logos, study. It's therefore strictly more accurate to say that by one human, sin entered the world and death spread to all. While Adam becomes the representative of us all, the focus, I think, is not primarily on his gender, as a man, but on his humanity. In fact, scripture elsewhere confirms that Eve was complicit in sin alongside Adam. Together, they were responsible for the catastrophe that unfolded. Biologos has this to say, The narratives of Genesis focus on conflict and resolution. God's purpose from the beginning is to have his presence fill the earth. Humans are to image God and subdue the earth, i.e. bring about order and fruitfulness in creation. Genesis 1-2 Conflict enters the story when humans rebel against God. Genesis 3 Shalom is shattered and the earth is cursed. Further degradation takes place. Genesis 4-6 Until God brings judgment and mercy. Genesis 6-9 Humans then attempt to restore God's presence. Genesis 11 before God launches his own initiative to re-establish his presence on the earth, the covenant. Genesis 1-11, then, is the founding story of humanity ending in crisis. These narratives give a real and true assessment of God's initial purposes and the human plight. Genesis 12-50 is the founding story of the nation with whom the covenant is eventually made at Sinai. The covenant establishes the relationship to Abraham and his descendants, provides the structure for living in God's presence, and lays the foundation for God's presence to be established on earth. The consequence of the fall in Eden, mortality, flowed from Adam and Eve to all of humanity, a literal reality and a core theological truth embedded within the Genesis record. Dying became hard-coded in our DNA. Not only that, Paul comments later in Romans 7, sin is a powerful and destructive force that humans find impossible to resist. Humanity has been sold under sin, constantly battling against the pull of our own self-will, which is invariably in opposition to God. Despite having the desire to do good, more often than not we lack the ability to do what is right so powerful is sin's hold and influence over us. There is no one in all the world who has not fallen prey to sin's insidious, whispering temptation. The introduction and continued presence of sin in the world 
is what gives death its power over humanity. We die because we're mortal, and death now reigns supreme, and we remain dead because of the power that sin gives death. In Adam, all die. This is Paul's first point, and the incontrovertible theological teaching of Romans 5. Yet, says Paul, in Romans 5 verse 21, and here he makes his second point, in Christ there is life. There is another theological truth embedded within the Genesis record, a promise that new life would be delivered out of death. God, in speaking to the serpent in Genesis 3 verse 15, says this, And I will put enmity, or open hostility, between you and the woman, and between your seed, or offspring, and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Humanity was promised that a descendant of Eve, another human, would arise to wage war against sin, and to overthrow death. Yet in waging this war, death would deal him a powerful blow, a seemingly mortal wound. But out of his death would flow life. This promise would be affirmed countless times throughout Scripture, and particularly by Jesus himself during his ministry, who stated the reason for his coming was that they, humanity, may have life, and have it in abundance, or, as the Amplified Bible puts it, to the full till it overflows. Unable to wage the war for themselves, God's promise and gift to the world would go into battle on humanity's behalf. He would wage war for all those who were weak, utterly helpless, and hopelessly enslaved to sin. Those who were living in darkness, far from the eternal life God had intended for them. Those whose greatest enemy was death itself. In fact, This hero's redemptive work on behalf of humanity would be deeply connected to his own humanity. He had to be human, like us, in order to make atonement for the sin of humanity. As a human, he would still feel keenly the pull of sin's seductive promise, the desire and temptation, as the first Adam had, to undertake this battle on his own terms he would wrestle with the terrifying but necessary reality of confronting death up close. Not just any kind of death, but the painful and humiliating death of a traitor. He would face the world's great enemy alone, rejected by all in the moment of his greatest need, even by those who were closest to him. Defenceless, like a lamb led to slaughter, he would cling to the words of the psalmist, that, though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, God would be with him still. He would choose to suffer according to God's will, committing his soul to a faithful creator. This war would be brutal and bloody and seemingly fatal for our hero. And yet, there would be an extraordinary twist. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45 says, Where the first Adam had been a living being, the last Adam would be a life-giving spirit. This hero would be human, but not merely a human. He would be the Word made flesh, the one and only of his kind, and in him would dwell the entire fullness or completeness of God's nature. 
written into the very fabric of our reality, was a powerful promise that sin could be defeated by the willing sacrifice of one who had committed no sin and who had lived a perfect moral life according to God's will. The sacrificial death of such an individual on behalf of all of humanity would heal the division between God and humanity, reopening the way to the eternal life God had always intended for his creation. Scripture could not be any clearer that the victory over sin and death was going to be God's, accomplished through the sending of his Son, the Word made flesh. Sent in the likeness of all of humanity, but in whom dwelt all the fullness of God, only the uniquely special Son of God would be able to overcome and defeat our greatest enemy. Not only that, in meeting death head-on, he would deal it a fatal blow, overturning and destroying its claim on him. Sin's power to command death would be vanquished. Jesus himself would now hold the keys of death and the grave. On the third day, at the break of dawn, he would rise from the silence, life himself having swallowed up death in victory. One act of righteousness, Paul says, led to justification and life for all of humanity. By one man's obedience, many would be made righteous. He comments in Romans 5 verse 21 that as sin has exercised kingly sway in inflicting death, so grace too may exercise kingly sway in bestowing a righteousness which results in the life of the ages through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love how well-known author C.S. Lewis writes about this epic moment in his fictional work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He writes, At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean? asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. This deeper magic is an immutable law of consequence, as certain as the law of gravity or the rising of the sun. Jesus has brought life, and all those in him will live. This gift of grace has been given. The work has been finished, and the end has been written. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. 
And further, now that we are reconciled, we will also be saved by his life. In Christ, all will live. This is Paul's second point, and the incontrovertible theological teaching of Romans 5. One of the great theological truths of the Christian faith, as taught by Paul, and indeed written into the earliest Christian creeds, is the necessary and factual reality of the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul asserts that resurrection underpins the entire gospel narrative, without which all of Christian life is rendered futile. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Paul actually summarizes the gospel by affirming three statements, one of which is a declaration of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. He says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, the Anointed, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. The Christian faith asserts and teaches that resurrection is a historical reality. Jesus Christ really did live, die, and was raised again to eternal life. The resurrection is not only relevant to the gospel narrative, it's essential. Author Craig Blomberg comments, As wonderful as Jesus' life and teaching and miracles were, they were meaningless if it were not historically factual that Christ died and was raised from the dead, and that this provided atonement or forgiveness of the sins of humanity. Embedded in this reality is the proof that what was begun in Jesus, God intends to do for all creation. The New Bible Dictionary 1996 edition on page 1010 has this to say, The most startling characteristic of the first Christian preaching is its emphasis on the resurrection. The first preachers were sure that Christ had risen, and sure, in consequence, that believers would, in due course, rise also. This set them off from all the other teachers of the ancient world. Nothing is more characteristic of even the best thought of the day than its hopelessness in the face of death. Clearly, the resurrection is of the very first importance for the Christian faith. Jesus didn't just overcome death, his death also made reparation for all the sins of the world. As Romans 6 verse 10 comments, sin in its entirety was dealt with once and for always. This, of course, doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin. This is the challenging reality of the Christian life. But rather, that the penalty that sin inflicts, death, has been absolved for those in Christ. As Paul comments in Romans 8 verse 22, we eagerly wait with all of creation to be completely set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jesus' resurrection was both proof and promise that the war against sin had been waged and won. Death has lost its power. Those in Christ will live, no longer to be held by death, but merely passing through it. They too, like him, 
will be raised to life never again to experience death. Jesus himself says in John 5 verse 24, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Life, and life abundantly, the same life that Jesus now has, awaits them on the other side. It's no wonder Paul concludes his thoughts on this subject with these inspiring words. In everything we have won more than a victory because of Christ who loves us. I am sure that nothing can separate us from God's love, not life or death, not angels or spirits, not the present or the future, and not powers above or powers below. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is indeed good, good news. 